1: Hello and welcome to the Bradley Wiggins Show from Eurosport. With you throughout the 2018 Vuelta Espana, I'm Bradley Wiggins.
2: I'm Sean Kelly, and I'm Adam Green. And coming up today, we look back on all the past week's action at La Vuelta. Discuss the Simon Yates versus Movistar duel. Plus, we'll talk Tour of Britain as well. Brad, how are you? Good, good to see you. Thank you. Yeah, good. And Sean, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Great to have you here today. Now, good to be here, you won the Vuelta in '88. So, it's a race that must have a lot of happy memories for you.
3: Yes, well, lots of happy memories because I was a rider, started out as a sprinter. Slowly, I developed into a, a stage race, rather, meaning week long races like the Paris Nices and Tour of Switzerland, of course. And then I went on uh, challenging for a Tour of France, uh, the Ovar victory, and then uh, the Vuelta as well, and managed to win it in 88.
2: Do you think people were more versatile back then? Jack of all trades, if you like.
3: Well, I think uh, most people were doing more races and it. it wasn't as specific as it is now where riders, they focus on you know, one-day races, uh, classics, maybe the short or stage races, or they focus on the Tour of France. Uh, back in the day, <clears throat> the riders who were going for the Tour of France were also doing the classics at the beginning of the season, for example. They were challenging in the Paris-Nice. Uh, you know, in my time, Eno, Fignon and all of those riders, they were trying to win Paris-Nice at that time. That's something changed, I think, be, a bit later in the, time, in the time of Indoran and the rest of the uh, Tour of France uh, contenders.
2: Is it right you never got a trophy for 88?
3: I got a trophy and uh, it ended up in the, uh, the Cast factory, which was uh, in Victoria. And um, it was just, you know, parked there, let's say. But then when I went looking for it, it couldn't be found uh, a number of months uh, later.
2: So you don't know where it is to this day?
3: Well, it's still in, it's still there in the Pays Basque region of Spain, and I've been following it up. And, uh, it's probably in my collection, actually. I might have bought <laughs> <not> that yet.
1: <laughs> not you yet. Need to check
3: that. I'll have a <laughs> look. No, not yet. I know that is not in the weekend's collection, <laughs> but it is in uh, it is in uh, Pays Basque country, and I have been following it up. And there is a guy in Ireland who has been, you know, looking out uh, for the last uh, five or seven years for my trophies, and he has uh, he's led to believe that it's still in a, in, a, in Pays Basque somewhere.
2: Oh, what a mystery!
3: Well, it is. It is a mystery, and it's something that you know I have been trying to find for many years now. Because I have a very good collection of all my other trophies and jerseys and some of my bikes, so that is yeah one of the major ones I haven't got in my collection.
1: On that eighty-eight Walter Sean. You know the um, we see all the riders now. We talk about Froome this year with the Giro Tour double. Tom de Milan we're seeing Valverde now having come out of the tour and doing a good Vuelta Simon Yates also Giro toured Vuelta this year but you said you didn't have a great tour after that 88 Vuelta win did you and did you always find it difficult to double up in those days did it just take that bit too much out of you the Vuelta win and...
3: yes very much so and um, you know not only the Vuelta of course because I was doing the beginning of season all the classics and yeah the yeah. classics well Paris Nice first of all then leading into all the classics so you know I was uh, trying to get to my peak at that time um during the classics April. Leading into the Vuelta of course, you know, there's only two weeks between the uh, um the finish or one week between Liege Bastion Liege and the kick off mm. of the Vuelta. So you had to hold your form, you know, right through and then for the three weeks. So by the time the Tour of France came round, yeah, you paid for that effort and you know, trying to be in top shape for a long number of weeks.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um Brad you brought us a wonderful shirt last week. You've done the same again. Uh, you can see this on the Eurosport
1: uh broadcast <laughs> yeah, this, this, this one's from Nineteen ninety six. So Alex Zulla the we wore this in the last time trial. Um it was an all Swiss podium that year with Alex winning. Lauren Dufaux was second and Tony Rominger was third. The race also famous for stage thirteen where Miguel Indrain climbed off. It was his last race. Um but you can see that's a skin suit. Obviously you see a skin suit today that the guys was wearing, it probably looked like it would fit a child. Material's completely different. Baggy, So again, you know, the technology has come on a hell of a lot in the last twenty mm. years, and you know what the guys are wearing now in terms of material and the cut of the suit. It's it plays a massive part in how fast they time trial. So equipment's changed an awful lot, hasn't it, Sean, uh, over the years?
3: Well, it's it's changed an awful lot during my career. Maybe not as much in Bradley Wiggins' time because you know he's much younger. Uh, But yes, from the time I started professional uh, in the early 70s, of course, you know, the bikes were all steel at that time. Then slowly it moved into... um titanium aluminium bikes and then of course the carbons came in a bit later and and also you know all the components has changed so much it's huge development and when i started out uh, in my first year's professional course the the gear change was down on the down so you had to sit down to make a gear change where now you know we have them on the hoods there so he can change it any time uphill downhill
1: who was the last rider to win milan san Remo in tow clips and straps king kelly yeah. 92, Argentine. <laughs> so you were one of the last riders to go from the toast clips and straps to the clipless pedals, weren't you? One of the last riders to make the move.
3: Yes, I was one of the yeah. last. I wasn't the last, but yes, yeah, certainly one of the last. And uh, yeah, I was a guy, I suppose, I didn't uh, move to uh, new technology very quickly. I was comfortable with the uh, the toe straps the binder straps, as they mm. called them back in the time. Uh, other riders, you know, just couldn't wait to make the change over when we had the clipless pedals when they came in, of course, with Eno and uh, the rest of the riders. And, uh, yeah, I continued for a long time with uh, pedals and straps.
2: I almost don't want to bring it up, but 87, I know your seat caused you some problems, didn't it, when you were looking good at the Vuelta?
3: Yes, well, I was uh, looking good to win the Vuelta. I'd got through a lot of the difficult stages. And uh, three days before the end, after an individual time trial, I had to pull out because I had a a boil on my bottom, as they say, <laughs> saddle sore. <laughs> and uh, it was something that it was something that was coming. Uh, you know, it was there for a number of days before, five or six days, and it was just getting more painful. Um, then the um, the night before the time trial, the uh, the doctor decided to lance it and just uh, drain it a bit uh, to relieve the pain a bit, and uh, that didn't help. And the time trial it was very painful. It was a short time trial, of course you know, you have an hour time trial. But the next day, from the start, I just couldn't bear the pain anymore and I had to pull out with the uh, race leader's jersey on my shoulders.
1: It must have been bad for you to stop.
3: <laughs> the pain. Yes, very, very bad. And uh yeah, it was, as I said, for a number of days, it was getting just so unbearable. But I was hoping that it would get a bit better, but... Slowly, it was just getting too much pain to bear. Uh,
2: let's look back on Sunday's stage at this this year's uh, La Vuelta from Sistiana up to the summit finish at Lagos de Covadonga, which was won by Thibaut Pino. Uh, a great ride from him today, Brad, wasn't it? A Really good attack up there.
1: Yeah, I saw him yesterday talking at the finish and saying that he, you know, he was he was starting to feel really good now into this third week, and he was you know hoping to do a bit better than he did yesterday, depending you know, going on how he felt. So. I don't think it was any surprise today to see him off the front. He did kind of warn us of this. And, you know, he he really pushed on at quite a tough moment. Simon tried to close the gap and couldn't couldn't quite get to him. And we saw the effort he was putting in in the last 50, 50, 60 metres. So just to get every last second out before he threw his arms in the air. So he's, you know, he's moved up a bit. Not quite enough to be a challenger, I don't think, at this stage. But he's definitely showing he's coming better into this third week now. We spoke a few weeks ago about... You know, the the GC will change quite a bit as we go through this race. People will cl- close time, you know, time gaps that they've lost time in the first couple of weeks. And, and he's one of them now. He's really showing strong. And Lopez as well had an attack today and,
2: and looked pretty strong, didn't he, Sean, towards the top?
3: Yes, well, Lopez is looking strong. Uh, Pino, of course, today he had that um, advantage. He was further down the general classification, 2.26 down. So he was loaded a little bit of lead away when he attacked. Six kilometres out is a long way to go. So I think everybody's thinking, oh, this is a long way to go. Uh, uh, so he did, yes, get the advantage of being that further down in the general classification. Lopez looking good. Uh, you know, today he made a big effort, but for little gain in the end because uh, Stan they did a lot of riding today. You know, they were preparing the terrain for him for a long ways out. And uh, it looked like he was going to take uh, a bit more out of the other uh, general classification men like Yates and Quintana. But in the end, it was minimal gain.
2: Let's talk about the GC battle then. Simon Yates kept hold of the red jersey until Thursday's stage when Jesus Horrada got in a break and the GC teams were happy for him to get away. Then on Saturday's steep ascent of Les Prairies, Yates pulled away from his rivals to win and take the jersey back. Currently, Yates 26 seconds ahead of Valverde, 33 ahead of Quintana. It's been a great battle between him and the Movistar pair.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like yesterday's stage, uh, Quintana and Valverde. You know, Quintana went off the front and Valverde kind of played it the, the best out of the two. But, you know, they're running out of days, really. And they still haven't, you know, Simon still looks the three, the strongest of the three at the moment when they, when it's really mattered. But, you know, they still got those two cards to play. We said since the start that Movistar, you know, this is their most important race of the year. They've got two great cards to play at some point now. At what point are they going to sacrifice for each other? We don't know yet whether that will happen or not. Um, but at the moment, you know, I think we, we even saw Simon gesticulating quite a bit today to to Nairo. We don't know what it was quite over, but there's, there's clearly some frustration there, either about him attacking or chasing him down or not riding. We'll see how that pans out the next few days. But quite animated,
2: wasn't he? There's no love loss between the, the teams, are there? I mean, they've they've said Mitchelton and Scott aren't doing enough movistar accusing mm. them of that and and that arm waving today as well sure
3: yes well we did see that and we didn't uh, see exactly how it started out but yeah you could see that Yates was uh, getting a little bit peed off with uh, the movistar guys and yeah uh, Quintana you know we've seen him in this race already um you know between himself and Lopez it seems to be the Colombian battle there uh, it went a bit further today between Yates the race leader and uh, Quintana um, the interesting thing is, you know, the date, the, today's stage was the big day, Lake to Covadonga We're expecting big gaps, but when you look at the general classification, it's still very tight at the top. The time trial is going to be of major, major importance, and you know Yates is going to have to put up a, a real good time trial, which he's capable of doing. And if he does that, well, then the fight is going to go on all the way. And there's a lot of difficult days to come. We have three more mountaintop finishes next week, and the final week of a you know of a big three-week tour that's where you can really see the cracks between the main challenger for the overall victory.
1: Who's looking strongest, do you think, Brad, at the moment? Well, I'd say at this stage, Simon. Um, but we said that at the Giro, didn't we? At this stage. And then look what happened. So, Will that be on his mind, do you think? The I'm fact sh- that here we go I'm again sure into will. week three, I'm, sure I'm, I'm in the lead, And I'm sure it'll be on the team's mind. He looks like he's been a little bit cleverer this time round. He hasn't been quite making the same sort of efforts he did at the Giro, you know, 15, 16 kilometres to go. There was too much emphasis on the Giro with the upcoming time trial with the likes of Chris Froome and Dumoulin to go up again. He'll probably be more confident with 26 seconds on, on a Valverde in the time trial and a Quintana. Perhaps not the, as good a time trial as Dumoulin and uh, Froome. So, you know, he's in the driving seat, but um, at the same time, he, he won't be taking anything for granted. And that will be on his mind, definitely, yeah. Do you think Adam Yates is, is almost holding
2: back to help? his brother, in the final week. Could that be something we might see?
3: Well, Adam is def- definitely getting better. We see him there today. He was sitting on that uh, small, very small group, very selected group of uh, big favourites. So he's getting better and uh, coming into the race because he he was struggling majorly at the, um, uh, at the beginning of this race. But I think the interesting one at the moment is Christwick is, you know, very much in the race, 129 down, 32 kilometer time trial. Chryswick could take a lot of that time back, so he could come into the equation as well. And uh, you know, going into the final week, if he is uh, very much up there, uh, he could be a, a real, a real danger man as well. So, you know, this race uh, it's very much to fight for between that top four guys in the uh, in the overall standing.
2: Yeah, Lopez 43 seconds down. Iran is now two minutes 29 down. Could there be a left field? challenge you do you think that could get
1: into the top 3 perhaps from from out of nowhere uh there's always that opportunity i mean we saw the the other day they they were happy to give the jersey up to the the rider um i think they knew that he wouldn't last the next few days and that they would end up getting that back but what that did cause was that kind of bit of a you know disagreement between movistar and Mitchelton. there was a bit of poker going on there as to who was going to chase it down um there's always that opportunity, but I think I think this is it now. This is going to play out the last the last week. I think the top three will remain the top three, just as to what order at this stage.
2: And, of course, your tip was Valverde. He opted not to take that. Bonus for the sprint the other day to take red.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we've seen, yes. you know, with the week coming up now, 20 seconds is nothing in the Vuelta. Bonuses on the finish line. Big effort with a kilometre to go on a, on a steep gradient. You could lose 20 seconds easy, plus a bonus. All of a sudden, you've got 30, 40 seconds. So you know there's, there's all to play for the the margins are so small at 26 seconds you could lose that in a heartbeat it's it's boiling up to be a classic race isn't it sure
3: it is certainly boiling up and uh, you know I'd not be uh, too sure some of the men who are further down the general classification they could uh, come back into the uh, equation depending on if this rivalry between Moby Star and and Yates yeah, Mitchell and Scott but the interesting one is that I was looking at yesterday Jack Hague we see him coming in yesterday fighting all the way to the line at the moment, he's in 15 at 10-10 down, so he was fighting big time today. I was asking myself the question, what is the point of he fighting up lancaster Coverdonga? He needs to rest up a bit and be there for Yeats uh, on the more important days to come next week.
2: OK, well, we'll be back
4: after this. Eurosport Player is the only place to watch every minute of the Vuelta live and on demand. Follow every stage of this year's final grand tour with an uninterrupted ad-free stream, the very best expert analysis and commentary and catch-up on all the best action available on demand. Visit EurosportPlayer.com now to sign up.
2: Okay, let's have a look at some other Vuelta talking points from the past week. We had a perfect sprint lead-out from Quick Step again, which saw Viviani win his second stage of the race. BMC's DeMarkey won impressively. AG2R's Alexander Jeniez won on the crazy finish of Stage 12. And amazingly, the Euskadi Moraes rider Oscar Rodriguez took his first-ever professional win on Stage 13. Now, you rode for a Basque team, Sean. Did you know anything about him at all? It was a real surprise, wasn't it?
3: It was a surprise, and... uh... Out of that big breakaway, when we went on to that final climb, Micah and uh, Dylan Tunes were up the road and I thought it was going to be a battle between those two guys. But slowly we could see that green jersey and I had no idea which one of the guys from uh, uh, from the team it was because there were three of them in the break that day. And when we did uh, you know, get information that it was Rodriguez, I didn't know nothing about him. But you know, to take nothing from his victory, what a performance because he rode the race technically very well Mike had just, you know, the usual, he just started attacking and we did hear a bit of Contador talking. If you go too hard, too early on that climb, you're going to pay in the final 2.53 kilometres and that's exactly what happened. And, uh, you know, that guy, he just walked away at it at, at his pace, just got back to the two guys, rested for a fraction of a second and then went on again and, you know, won very impressively and uh for the team what a performance for the rider himself
1: rode it like a veteran really didn't he brad yeah and uh you know ultimately what it comes down to on those type of climbs you've got to have the legs really and i think he had the legs and um you know i was i was listening to nicholas roach the other day when his teammate won they were in the same group for a while and he he actually just said to his teammate i just haven't got the legs i'm gonna to have to ride at this tempo now just to recover and let his teammate go on, and he won that stage. So you know it—it it, it boils down to whoever's got the legs at the end of the day, as we saw with Pino today. Really, I mean, it's just the—the—the the, the, the gradient of these climbs in the Vuelta is so unique. You just don't get it in so many other races. And you know, on some climbs like we saw in the Tour de France and that, if a rider cracks, you know, you, you can keep riding and recover and come back into it. You crack on these climbs at these 19, 20%, 13% gradients average. You know, there's just nowhere to go. The only place you go is backwards, and it's um, it's brutal. And we, as I said, saw that guy. You know, it was incredible to, to get the win the way he did. And is it good for
2: the sport when somebody we're not looking at at all wins? What does it do to the peloton? Does it make well, them sit up and take notice? <laughs>
3: Well, I think there will be a lot of teams taking notice of this guy because you know to win a stage like that, and the company was in in that very big breakaway, such a difficult finish. You know he has he has something, Um, but for the team itself, uh, you know for the Basque team, it's a team that's just after getting back into the pro peloton. I think is a good thing, and um, you know it's the wildcard teams. It's always difficult to win stages in big three week tours, but uh, you know for the sponsors and for the future of the sport. I think to attract sponsors into, you know, um, to a country pro team, it's always important you have those teams in there in the big three-week tours because, you know, they are potential sponsors maybe to go to bigger things in the years to come.
2: And I suppose the beauty of Love Welter is breakaways seem to do so well and we've seen it day after day, haven't we?
1: Mm. But I think that's the nature of the race as well. It's, It's just, it's such a tough race. That they simply the GC guys can't race every day. So and once the gaps we saw on day one, the time gaps on, on after two stages already, you know, so that that gives scope for a lot of people down the back end of the race after two weeks' racing the hours down, to go up the road and not be any threat to the GC guys. So essentially, they get a day off, and those guys can race out the stage win together. And and you wouldn't necessarily get that in the Tour de France or any other races because there's there's too much to play for. Mm.
3: And there's at the end of season as well, I think, you know, there's. Uh, there's some riders here maybe are uh, a bit tired, fatigued from a lot of races. Eight man teams as well this year, um, maybe a bit more difficult uh, to control. And uh, we've seen you know where they have uh, difficulty controlling the big groups. And you know, it's amazing in this uh, Vuelta, you know, groups of 28 32 riders getting up the road. When you have that, if they work anyway together well, they should be able to go all the way to the finish. And you know, we've seen there have been so many successful breakaways and stage wins from that.
2: How is it possible that that many riders get up the road? Because we, we rarely see it in other races.
3: Yeah, I think it's it's just the
1: way that the first hour, or two hours of racing pans out. Obviously, you know, riders, you, you will know from the stages what's, that there's going to be a breakaway today. The break's going to go to the finish. And, you know, you only have to get two or three riders attacking and another three go across, then another five. And all of a sudden, you've got ten guys up the road. Then, then you know they're not happy behind with the 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 uh, the, the amount of riders in front or the numbers that are in front, or it looks like that brake's going to go. So another two jump across as they see that the ship's about to leave. Another three go after them, and and then you've got the panic stations in the GC teams that are trying to shut the road down. That they're happy with that break. Let's stop. Let's all have a wee. You know that that's it for the day. And then riders panic again then and think, OK, this is the break, so I'm going to just chance and go and everyone will start swearing at that rider for attacking and starting it all up again. And before you know it, you've got 15, 16 guys up the road and then once they start going through and off and it gets to 30, 40, that truly is it then because you, you know, you'd have to be a pretty strong rider to go on your own from the peloton and close a 30, 40 second gap on 16 guys that are going through and off. So... You know, it does develop like that. We saw it in the Tour de France this year into that third week. At one point I think we had forty riders up the road in one of the one of the forty-seven riders in the Tour de France on one of the and Sagan always seemed to be there. So it does happen and then from that big group it will whittle down to the group that will contend the stage win. But you know, those guys, you know, there'll be number checking as well. So with everyone with every attack that goes from the Peloton, whoever's got the leader's jersey, whether it be Simon and his team, he'll have a road captain Who'll have all the numbers on his top tube of the riders we can't let go. So guys predominantly that are sixteen, seventeen minutes, there'll be desperate communication with the team car. So they'll be relaying the information. Okay, apparently such and such is up the road. He's at seventeen minutes. We can't let anyone else closer than that go. So there'll 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 be a there'll there'll be a, a calculation going on as to you know, kind of letting guys a quick look at the number. Oh, he's okay. You know, kind of another one's gone. Oh, he's okay. Someone at three minutes is up in the brake. We can't let that. And then they'll they'll call back from the car. We need to chase him down. So straight away they'll chase him down, shut the race down, and it, that just continues until the elastic snaps and the brake is gone. Who puts that on the top tube? The Depending let's... on which team. I mean, uh, when I was at Sky, it was Mick Rogers that would do that or a bernard eisel um in sky now it's probably luke rowe that would do that um are they writing themselves and taping it on or they'll, they'll be looking through the road captain's job in the morning of the gc and they'll kind of go right down to 20 30 depending on the time gaps and kind of ever just get a sort of a visual mental picture of of kind of who and you know the a lot of the riders anyway and who's dangerous and you know that you might go down to someone like um Haig there at 15th place you think okay he's 10 minutes down but we wouldn't want him to get into a break of 25 and then get 20 minutes because all of a sudden he's going to and that happened the other day with the coffee disc guy who they then they knew Movistar quite clearly and said you know we used to be with us so you know we know that he's probably not going to get over the mm-hmm. climb in the next few days so they were happy to give him that jersey by three minutes and seems like a quite an extreme sort of shopping list that
2: they're looking down looking at. It is, but it I think
1: you know these guys race together all season as well so you, you have a pretty good idea at this stage now Who's who? You work with these guys every day. You know, you see them in the office every day. So you know who the you know who the who the best ones are, who's not going to last the distance, or if someone's been in the break, that's three times he's been in the break now the last few days, you know, he's going to be exhausted. There's no way he's going to go to the finish. So when a group of thirty or
2: forty go up the road, obviously some of it's planned, but how often are you being told this is a chance, you go as well? Or do you just think for yourself as a rider, I'm going to chance it today?
1: Well, again, it depends on the team. You know, we very rarely see Many sky riders in the break because they've always got a job to do back in the peloton with someone. Um, but the last couple of days, we have seen we've seen Dylan Van Baal get up there, um, Tao was in the break today. So, you know, I think as their GC f- hopes fall away, there's a bit more freedom now to go and, go and get yourself in the break and see what happens. You might get a stage win today, but mm. it's very rare we see that from Sky.
3: And of course, when you put a guy into the breakaway, you know, it can be a help for later in the day. Uh, if you have a guy from Mobistan, we did see a yeah, VT was up there yesterday. You know, you were wondering, was that a tactic where they were going to play in the end and in soft and one we see. Uh, you can use that rather if they're going to an attack an attack from the team a bit further out from the finish.
2: Let's go back to the finish at stage 12, and Geniers won from Sky's Van Baal. The finish looked dramatic, thin, windy roads, ending up at a lighthouse. However, there was carnage at the finish line when a race official collided with Geniers, which in turn brought down Van Baal, who since had to leave the race injured. It's
4: such a shame,
1: actually, for, um, for Dylan Van Baal big man and you can see him oh and look, there's your pinch point now then let 's have a look at this we got an outrunner hello well that was his fault it wasn't a vehicle I'm afraid it was uh, um, a, well a fool Sean it looked madness at the finish yeah, line. I mean it was it was narrow anyway and a very extreme finish and the, only the type of finish you would get in a tour of Spain or a tour of Basque Country or a race like that um, And so they were they were chancing it anyway with a finish that narrow. But obviously you add in the post finish kind of triangle that's set aside for the photographers that, you know, predominantly have to have three quarters of the road for for all of them to fit on. All it leaves is a corridor for the riders to get through, you know, 50 metres after the sprint that just meant it was even narrower than normal add in the media director of the media who was in charge of the finish line running in that corridor at precisely the same time as the riders came through, you know, it caused what it did. And obviously he came off worst plus Dylan who had to leave the race, but, um, and the guy had won a stage, you know, he crashed. So he, he'd done all that work through the stage, won the stage and then crashed after the finish line through no fault of his own. So it was a real shame, but you know, I think that's, that's not the first time it's happened in, in any bike race, And I think the the press photographers have kind of, that's been part of cycling for a long, long time now, isn't it?
3: Yes, well, when you have a very narrow road like that and you have the photographers there, um, it does get, uh, you know, really tight. And we did hear a lot of the riders were complaining about that stage uh, which Jenny has won. Um, They were on a wide road, I think, two kilometres or 2.5 from the finish. Then they decided to go up this little bit, a little hill, narrow roads and then the final kilometre really technical on a narrow road only four metres wide, maybe. Um, yeah, you ask yourself, you know, what the they organised? Why are they doing that? And uh, yeah, it's something the safety for the riders is not being considered and I think it's something that the uh, the government body really, really has to look into. We also see on stage six, which Bohani won, the helicopter blew the barriers across the road and mm. it took out a number of riders. You know, th- things like that the riders are taking I think enough of uh, risk on these crazy downhills at 60, 70, 80 kilometres per hour but you know the safety in the final and I think we're seeing more and more of that in the races now where you know they are taking a lot of risk the organisers in the final of the races the run in and uh, it's something that definitely needs to be looked at.
2: Mm. Well, the cycling union, the CPA, has condemned what happened at the finish. Meanwhile, David Miller has announced he's running for presidency of the CPA. He says he wants to give the peloton more of a voice and look after
1: riders better. What do you make of that, Brad? Well, I think that should just be the norm, shouldn't it, really? So clearly um, that isn't happening at the moment. And as Sean said, with finishes like that, you know, th- this is kind of, I guess this is what that was set up for. This is the voice of the riders. It's supposed to be the union for the riders so they can essentially protest about things like this and say, we're not going to continue racing until you, you stop doing things like this. So, um, you know, it does need more power. It needs more, the riders do need more of a union. But unfortunately, the way the cycling is run at the moment, the, the riders are a secondary thought to, you know, the money and, and the investment and ASO that run the sport predominantly. They kind of organise the Vuelta now and everything. So... You know, it, and and I think a lot of people are quite scared to maybe protest against that in in the you know the the risk that they say, well, don't come back next year. We'll take another smaller team that will kind of. And I know back in Sean's day, they had quite a few protests, didn't they? With that were led by the riders, especially Eno, and more at the, the length of the transfers and the length of the stages, and then the transfers after the stage. And at some point, the riders said, "This is enough. We can't keep doing this." So. You know, it's it's, but you can't imagine anything like that happening again in this day and age. You know, and the unity amongst the riders and everyone saying, yeah, let's pull together." This isn't on because I think people are desperate for places. People are desperate for contracts, and riders essentially will put themselves at risk because they don't want to be the ones that either get sacked or the reason that the team don't get invited back next year. So everyone's very cautious at the moment. What it does need is a is a union that's powerful enough to go against the likes of ASO. Is David Miller the right kind of choice to
2: potentially go for the presidency?
3: Well, I think first of all on that subject is you, know, you don't have a patron in the peloton. Back in my day when I started, you had Eno, you had Jan Raas, you had Jacques Esclasson, you have Jerry Knitterman. and I remember my first tour uh, on one uh, uh, on one day we had we had three stages. Uh, Felix Leviton who was trying to do that, and they just went on strike. On the, on the finish of the fourth stage that morning, they just stopped 150 metres from the line and we just walked to the finish line and we stopped two, three metres before the line and Eno and the rest said, we're not going on with this, this is just not, it's not going to work. We've lost all of that. So yeah, you need somebody who is real strong, uh, head of the Riders Union. And if David Miller is prepared to go out there and, you know, really work on it, but you need somebody who is focused, really committed to, you know, Uh, being there for the riders, I think it could work. And, you know, we have Gianni Bunyo who is there at the moment, but I don't think he's, he's not pushing it enough. He's not as maybe involved enough. You need a real strong figurehead. And yeah, Miller's probably possibly a one if he's prepared to really work about it.
2: Uh, Garrett Thomas has been tweeting about the CPA in regards to it being difficult to vote in these elections. He said the number of WTN pro-conti riders in each member nation dictates the number of votes that one delegate carries. The rest of us have to turn up to Innsbruck in person in order to vote. WTF, says Garrant.
1: What do we make of his comments? Well, yeah, I mean, he knows a lot more about it than the rest. Well, certainly I do, because I wasn't aware of that, really. I didn't even know that there was a vote coming up. And I think that's half the problem, really, is this uh, CPA thing has been kind of so meaningless for many years now. Vasseur was the head of it before Jean uh, Bugno, And, you know, it's never really served its purpose. So... You know, at some point, it might take someone like the winner of the Tour de France in order to to bring it to the public light. And obviously, Garain tweeting about it can only be a good thing. But there is probably, you know, I don't think anyone's ever been aware of how you, you vote for someone to be elected into this position, really. So, like most things, I think in most sports, it's almost a little bit corrupt and a little bit swept under the carpet. And maybe people have been put into positions by the heads that be as a kind of a yes man. So... That may be another thing that needs to change and all the riders actually vote for the person that they want to be representative of their union. Uh, Okay, we're
2: going to be back to look forward to the final week of La Vuelta Racing and talk Irish cycling
4: as well after this. Great teams wear great kit. Fuel your passion for the latest cycling gear at the Eurosport shop with thousands of products and discounts on leading brands including Pearl Izumi, POC and Endura. Subscribe to eurosportshop.com now and get an additional 10% off your first order.
2: We had Adam Blythe with us last week talking about the demise of Aqua Blue. Is that a worry for Irish cycling do you think?
3: Of course it is. Um, you know, it's just been up and up and running on the road for uh, two years and uh, yeah here where you know it's gone. Um it was a big surprise to me and I think uh, yeah, a surprise and a disappointment to a, a lot of people, um uh, the riders especially. Um, uh, you know, at a late moment they're left there and they don't have a contract and you know, we did hear the team is not continuing next year, then twenty four hours later uh, they weren't taking the start in the Tour of Britain, which you know really didn't give the riders an opportunity to maybe to show themselves and try and do something and get uh, get noticed by another team. Um, and I suppose the biggest part of it is they were negotiating with um, Veranda Williams Creeland, and they were supposed to be you know coming together with that team. And um, you know it looked like the team was definitely going on, and then suddenly when that didn't happen. Um, with the team of uh, Wout van Aert and that's that cyclocross team, they just uh, announced they weren't going ahead for next year. So it was, uh, to me, it was a, a you know a, a shock, a disappointment, as it was to many people.
1: Do we know if they're selling the bikes off at all at any point? <laughs>
3: <laughs> we can ask Adam Blythe that one. Are you adding one to the
1: collection <laughs> is that? What's well, he gave quite a good. Um, Good assessment of the bike. So he didn't like them very much, did he? That's the impression I got. Was he didn't <laughs> like the bikes? Yeah, yeah, that came across.
3: I don't know if that was all the problem. It's a pity that you know the team is disappearing because yeah, for Irish cycling, and the future of Irish cycling for the younger ones coming off, coming up? It was something you yeah, had to look up to, maybe you know a stepping stone to get into the professional ranks.
2: Some good news from Irish cycling. Uh, your friend Nico Roach has joined Sunweb. That's a good move for him.
3: It is a good move, and uh, you know we were we were talking to him back in the tour. Uh, he was negotiating with a number of teams, and it's nice to see that he's joined a uh, a pro tour team and a good team, Sunweb, of course. And I think the change for him will be go to motivate him a bit. The change of color. I remember back in my day, you know, I was in teams. Maybe I was in maybe some teams for too long, but when you go to a new team, new personnel, it's always you know I think it gives you the morale boost and it gives you that motivation once again.
1: When do you perhaps know you've been in a team too long? Um, Well, Nico, he kind of moves around quite a bit, actually, and he's he's always been motivated to go and ride for other people. You know, I think that certainly in recent years since I was with him at Sky and stuff. And when he went to Sky, you know, he was thinking about the opportunity of riding for Chris Froome and obviously then he went to BMC with the opportunity of riding for Richie, And I think now his motivation will be to go there and and ride in the the company and the service of Tom Dumoulin as well as maybe getting his chance in some of the smaller races, which he likes. But, um, you know, he's getting into his kind of end of his career now, into his early 30s, mid 30s. And I think he'll be thinking this may be his last contract now, you know, and, and perhaps wants to go out with a bit of a bang and and see what he can do. And I think, you know, maybe got a little bit stale the last year or two in BMC, you know, especially with the stress of this season, not knowing what was happening with BMC and where they're going to find a sponsor. And when they did find a sponsor, you know which riders were they going to take on as well? And it's always difficult. In some ways, that can distract you from, from your racing and what you're doing and, and that not knowing. So I'm sure he'll be happy now that he's signed and he's actually got a purpose now for the next couple of years.
2: How easy is it to change a team? Because obviously we look at it as fans and go, you're riding bikes very well. But behind the scenes, can it be very, very different when you go from team to team?
1: I think it's a lot easier now than perhaps it used to be with Sean's era. But um, you know, I think the language barrier was always the number one factor. I think you know, if you um, you know, I think now predominantly the language spoken in the peloton is English. If you went to maybe a Movistar, that'd probably be the most difficult team to go with because they are Spanish through and through, and you would be expected to speak Spanish and communicate in Spanish in 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 every race, and not no no different to Sean's era when you went to a Spanish team, but. Now, even if I think if you went to a French team, most, you know, most of them, most of the guys would speak English and kind of allow you that um, freedom to start with until you learnt the language. But now, I mean, Katusha, although it's a Russian team, I, I guess the language of the team will be English, um, you know, and, and most of the Belgium squads as well, really. Although they're Belgium now, they'll they'll be accommodated with guys like Greipel and that. They'll communicate in English. So it's, it's a lot different now, a lot more international than maybe 30 years ago. What about for you, Sean? Was it uh, something that you found easy to do?
3: Well, as Brad has said, I think now in the teams, you know, it's multilingual and English would be the prominent one that they would speak when they'd be doing the team briefing and that. But back in my day, when I started out, of course, you know, I went to the French team and, um, you know, nobody really spoke English. So you had to you know, uh, learn pretty quickly. Um, and it's much easier now we see the teams, like, there's so many different nationalities in teams, so it's much, much easier. And uh, Your
1: Spanish is pretty good, isn't
3: it? Well, it was pretty good. And Apparently if... it's
1: better than your English. <laughs>
3: That's what I've heard. <laughs> but, of course, when you're not, you know, practising a lot, uh, which I'm not into Spanish, now I go to the Tour of France a lot and I go to race in France, so with my French, I'm, you know, still topping up all the time. Yeah. Uh, my Spanish, you know, I, I've lost a lot of when I get... When I get into talks with you know teammates of the past and they speak Spanish, I get stu- I get stuck for these words. But yeah, uh, that's something. Uh, uh it's something. If you if you don't practice with a lot of things, well then you start to lose it. But going back to to Nicholas Roach, I think you know the move was good for him. Because he's down in Monaco, he's trained with a lot of the teammates as well from the BMC team, and you get to be good buddies with them, and you get to relax, and maybe with the personnel as well. And I certainly had that during my time when I was in teams. You know, you get to know the personnel over a number of years, and then you get to you know be very good friends with them, and it's be- it's difficult for them to be you know a bit a bit hard on you in the races, you know, because. In races, you have to be really difficult. As a director sportif. you have to be able to swear at your riders when you're in a breakaway or when you're hanging there in a mountain or you have to ride for a teammate. So, you know, it helps, I think, a change. And, you, you know, you, you, you know the the team, the personnel, they're your boss. And you look up at them as your boss. Where when you're in a team for a number of years, it's not the same.
2: So you have to know how to swear in many languages as well, I suppose. Well,
3: that's the first thing you learn in languages. <laughs>
2: Uh, Okay, let's look at what's coming up this week. After the rest day, we have the individual time trial, then a new climb to Balcon de Biscaya on stage 17, plus two stages with summit finishes in the Andorran Pyrenees. Now, the last of these has non-stop climbing, culminating with the ridiculously steep first category, Col de la Galena. You both liked a time trial. How do you expect that to go on Tuesday?
1: Well, I mean, again, you know, with this type of gradients and the difficulty of the climb, you know, it all comes down to how you've recovered from the day before. You know, if you're well hydrated, we're into the third week by now. And all you can do is do your race, really, and, and and hope that your legs are holding up into that third week. And, you know, that that's what's going to separate the riders now, really. I don't think you can really predict that, as we said with Simon earlier, that no one could have predicted what happened to him into those last few days of the Giro likewise the, the change in form that Froome had into the last three days of the Giro so this this I mean Valverde could lose everything you know he's he's not looked the sharpest the last two stages although he's still been there and fighting on we we just don't know Quintana could come into his own Andorra Simon lives in Andorra so he will know will know the climb pretty well I imagine I've, I've used it a lot in 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 training and you know, the hot. A lot of the team lived there as well, so I think they'll 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 be feel like they're on home roads a little bit, and that could play that could play to their advantage.
2: Where will it be won? Do you think, Sean? Could the time trial be absolutely decisive, or is it going to be on one of these mountain finishes?
3: Well, first of all, I don't think I can be rated the same as Bradley for time trialing because he was, he was the uh, the real time trialist, and uh, you know we see it. His pop, the way he could uh, dominate in time trials. I always struggle in time trials but I could limit my losses but I think the time trial is going to be very interesting because when you look at the top of the general classification, you know, you look at Valverde 26, Quintana 33, Lopez at uh, 43, it's very tight at the top and I think all of those guys are pretty similar in time trialling.
1: Yeah, no one stands out from that group like it did at the Giro or the Tour, you know, into that last time trial, so that's that's better for us watching, I think it's going to be a real Real Hamdinger.
3: So I think after the time trial it's going to be still very tight at the top and uh you know it's going to be a big battle in the final week. And you know, you look at three mountain top finishes, I know on Wednesday it's a small mountain, but you know, depending on how it races as well, if you have these mad races at the start where there's so many riders want to get in the breakaway. You know, Wednesday stage is a small mountain at the end, but it could be a one. It could be vital, and we could see some very big time gaps. And then, of course, we have stage nineteen and twenty; they're major big days. And I think yes, this final week we're going to see you know big surprises between the general classification men.
2: You say you're not at the same level of, as Brad with time trying. He trally. wasn't bad. He we're wasn't all bad. equal as far as I'm I
1: concerned. I remember we... that <laughs> Nissan Classic show <Sean>, with Poel. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, that day was a tailwind. Made a bit of a helicopter behind.
1: <laughs> <laughs> We're all equal here. We've won
2: two grand tours between the three of us. So that's um, now predictions. Who's going to win the Vuelta
1: this year? Well, I, Simon's looking good at the moment. Um, but I'm sticking, I've got to stick with my first prediction of Val, Valverde. I have to stick with him. I have to see it through to the end.
2: Can he do it, Sean? You've got your name, uh, someone else in, in line.
3: Can I pick two? Uh,
2: who's Who's your favourite? <laughs>
3: Well, I would uh, I would still go for Yates. I think uh, he's in a real good position. And uh, if he can get through the time trial, uh, I think then he could go all the way. But uh, I think Quintana is still a danger one.
2: Uh, OK, let's end with a look back at the Tour of Britain, which was won by Julian Alaphilippe on Sunday. His first stage victory uh, in two
1: years. He's had a great year, hasn't he, Alaphilippe? He's been amazing, really, and you know he's kept this form up. I mean, won San Sebastian. You know, we saw him up. I mean, I don't know how many breaks he was in in the Tour de France, but it was a lot. Um, He's won the Tour of Britain now, which is a tough race. It's not an easy race to win. You know, what are we now? He's got a couple of weeks to the World Championships. Can he can he continue this form through to the Worlds? You know, it's a hilly World Championships. You know, you wouldn't put it past him doing something there. So it's just whether he can hold this form now. He's been going for a long, long time. And, um, you know, it's, it's yeah, hats off to him. What a brilliant season he's had. What have you made of the race as a whole, Sean? Because
2: people watching at the roadside, it's been incredible, hasn't it?
3: Well, the Tour of Britain has been a major success, you know, f- for the last number of years and once again this year. And uh, when you see the riders, the tracks, it's, uh, it's not surprising. And, you know, you always get great, uh, great racing, very aggressive racing. And um, I suppose, yeah, when you look at British cycling, you look at you know the Tour of France this year uh, with uh, Guerin Thomas winning it, us. Uh, it's normal that uh, it's getting so popular. And there's so many people coming out on the roadside, and long may it continue.
2: I suppose the organizers of Love Vuelta might look at the Tour of Britain quite envious of the crowds because I mean in London alone they were phenomenal, weren't they? Uh,
3: yes
1: and no. I don't think they'll be looking at it. I mean they the Vuelta is the World Championships for them. That's the biggest race of the year, and you know it's. Um, How big Spain is and how much it covers in Spain. I think they do all right. Obviously, we've got quite a small country, relatively small compared to Spain. And you know, as we said, I think a few weeks ago, you know, just Spain. There's there's vast, vast parts of Spain that are just desert, deserted. You know, you're riding for 100, 150 kilometers without seeing a town and it's um you know it is it is a it is a big old place when you're riding around it but um no i mean britain obviously success draws the crowds in and, and spain has always been passionate about cycling but you know we've got geraint and chris Froome in the race and i don't you know when have we had two british tour de france winners in in a in a national tour um i don't think we we, we never have had so it's, um, you know, the crowds are bound to come out and, and so they should, you know, it's it's opportunities to see them also. Team Wiggins have been there. What have you made of their performance? They've been brilliant. I mean, they've been present throughout. We lost a couple of riders. Unfortunately, Joey crashed out, had a quite a nasty crash and obviously he's, he's pleased to say he's doing well. Um, we had another guy pull out um, with a bad back, but um, Gabs was still up there in a couple of sprints, fourth on stage one. We had the sprint jersey for a couple of days. So the guys have been present and... It's just been an honor for them to be part of the race i think and, and, and mix him with tour de france winners and king of the mountains from the tour de france in Philippe, and you know it's it's a, it's a brilliant race and a great learning curve for them
3: well it's it's a great experience for the guys to be able to get into a race like the tour of britain in the company of the riders that are there and you know i've seen it in the past as well when we the team on the road uh, to get into the tour of britain it was you know um, something that the riders really look forward to and when you're when you know you're going to the tour of britain the riders they fight so much in the number of weeks leading up to it to just get in, to get a place on the team, that tells you know how important it is to the uh, the younger riders coming up, and uh, you know it's just it's an, it's an experience that you just cannot put a price on for those guys yeah. to be able to get into those races.
1: And it can be a big stepping stone as well. I mean, it's particularly Sean's team, Sam Bennett winning a stage the year I won the race was his big breakthrough and step up into. Yeah. The pro ranks and what he's doing now, winning stages in the Tour of Italy, and so you know it's an opportunity, it's a shop window for a lot of those guys in the smaller teams to make an impression at the Tour of Britain. And, you know they don't come around too often. Uh, we've heard as well that Garrett Thomas has signed a new contract at Sky. That's no surprise, is it? I I didn't ever think he would. I mean, why would he? You know, he's had all his success at Sky. You know, he's got the best backing there. They you know they all get paid well. He, you know, they all get on well, they've got friends there. Um, you know, Garant's been in that setup now for since the start and beyond and before that, obviously with Rod and uh, everyone at the Academy before that British cycling. So in in some ways it's a perfect scenario for him because he can just sit back now and say, Froome's the leader again next year, but I'm here to win if you need me. And you know, in some ways it it played into his hands that in the tour this year because he could just take all the pressure off him. Froome's still the leader. I'm just pleased to be in this jersey. And he got a Tour de France win out of him, out of it now. So I think, had he moved teams, a team would have made big money for him to come, but they would have expected him to come and win a second Tour de France for them and go against his teammate in Chris Froome next year. And, you know, we haven't seen the last of Chris Froome. I think he'll be back stronger than ever next year. So, you know, the risk of going up against him, you know, when you could get paid the same and be in the security of that team and maybe get an opportunity again, I think it's a perfect position for him to be in, really.
2: After your Grand Tour wins, did you go talking to management because you must have had a bit more clout around the place?
3: Um, No, when I won my uh, Vuelta, I was happy with the team I was in. They were looking after me well. Um of course you have teams who always, you know, make inquiries but, you know, I never had any idea of changing. And as Brad said, I think, you know, you're in that uh, in that team for a number of years uh, and Geran Thomas has been in the team. So I think he's very comfortable there. He knows everybody uh, so well. And uh yeah, he's won his tour and um I think uh Gerard Thomas um if he moved to another team, it would probably be more difficult for him in that situation than to stay with Team Sky. And, you know, maybe he's relaxed there, he can go into the races, he can go back into the Tour of France, no pressure. And if Chris Froome is not performing, well, then he can just, you know, t- uh, take it up from there. Mm.
1: After you won, Brad. You... Yeah, I mean, I, I um, you know, I had no thought of leaving the team, really. I think it was just it was a case of, you know, you have your success in that team and, and part of the reason you have that success is because of the... You know the the support you get in terms of equipment. They've got the you know the trucks. They've got the offices and this that and the other. They take to races and Sky is leading the way in the, in pro peloton at the moment. So to leave that and maybe go down one step on the ladder, it's kind of you like you're leaving the biggest team to to try and do the same thing again with maybe less resource. So and as I say, you know part of the reason he won was because of the strength of the team as well. So not just Chris Froome, but you know, friends of his like Luke Rowe played such an important role in keeping Geraint in the top, in the, in the front at the start of the race on the cobbled stages. Kuyatowski, you know, who was just phenomenal during the Tour de France, Bernal. So to, to leave a squad like that and go to a, you know, there are there aren't any other squads in the Tour de France that are as strong as Team Sky. To then try and repeat that performance when. In in some ways it was the strength of that team that that put you in there in the first place you know it it doesn't make sense really and i'm i'm sure garant has got another grand tour winning him somewhere whether that's a tour the world tour the giro it remains to be seen but you know he's had all his success there they know him inside out he trusts the team he's happy there and um you know i don't see any reason to have to leave really
2: Okay, well, that's all from this episode of the Bradley Wiggins Show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Brad. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. This has been a Muddy Knees media production for Eurosport. Thanks for listening and goodbye.
4: Visit Eurosport.com and the Eurosport app for an unrivaled welter experience. Watch live, uninterrupted video streams of the entire race with a host of extra features. There's up-to-the-minute live blogging and analysis from Felix Lowe and in-depth breakdowns of the biggest stages and how the race was won. Plus, comprehensive news, race clips and the best of Eurosport's live coverage. Eurosport.com is the only place you need to be throughout the Vuelta.